listen, I, Brittany, I don't even know if I need to give you an intro, but <laughs> I watch you all the time on MSNBC where you are a contributor. Um, I, I just love your passion that you talk with. And so I want everyone to know kind of how we got here, basically. And I want to start at the beginning because I know you were born in St. Louis and you're a pastor's daughter, right? I am. I am. You have done your research. That's like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, It's so fantastic to talk to you. I'm a big fan, and I really appreciate how you are using your platform to have really broad conversations that our folks need to get into. So it's an honor to be here. Um, You know, growing up in St. Louis, St. Louis is uh, you know a mid-sized city with a small town feel, which means that everybody knows your business. And if you are a PK, um, everybody for real knows your business. And then my mom is also a native of St. Louis. So she is also a minister. She became one later in life. Um, But she was part of a a fairly well-known family in kind of black church circles, the Deloches. And so like times three, everybody knew my business. St. Louis, pastor's kid, Gwendolyn Deloches kid. Everybody knows your business. But what that means is that people are looking out for you. And to this day, when I go home, when we're able to do that, or when I'm talking to folks from home or, you know, reaching out to people, they always say, I'm praying for you. And that means so much more than any, you know, influencer box or, you know, celebrity that might know your name. Like when the people that know you and love you from before anybody ever knew your name outside of St. Louis, take the time to call out your name to God, to our creator, to, to think about how you're doing and how they can support you and how they can keep you protected. That means the world to me. So I'm grateful for the ways that St. Louis raised me. And I'm grateful for two parents who raised myself and my brother Barrington to be really committed to justice for the long haul. Like that was, that is the family's business period. So um, I really didn't have a choice to be anything but this, if That's we're awesome. honest. I love that. Okay. So you're surrounded by a power of prayer and a circle of prayer. I have the same thing with my family. So I I agree that I think that that's why I am where I am. But you say you didn't really have a choice. So did young Brittany know that she was going to get a bachelor's in African-American studies? Like, did you just know that that was going to be your path um, at Washington University? Like, what was young Brittany thinking? It's so funny because in some ways I think I did. So my dad was an adjunct professor at what ended up the place that ended up being my alma mater, Washington University. My mom also got her uh, master's in social work from that school. So WashU was always kind of in the family orbit. My dad also taught in the African-American studies department because he taught courses on uh, black liberation theology and the history of the black church, not just as a religious institution, but an institution of social change. And so this was literally the curriculum that I was around all the time. And because both of my parents were working parents, you know, you get picked up from school, you might end up in class with dad, you might end up in Bible study (laughs) with mom, you might end up at, you know, your own activities. So we were always busy. And because I was always with my parents wherever they were doing their work, it started to feel like the work I wanted to do too. So, you know, I started doing what was called diversity work back in the day, um, but really was just justice work at my majority white private high school, uh, really actually in, in middle school there. Um, uh, in the years earlier, I had been, you know, out of protests with my parents. And um, I remember not seeing black Santas in the mall one year. And my dad was like, what do you want to do about it? So 
We set up the protest. He made the <laughs> contacts. Like my week, my yes, Black Santa. His church members held signs. The <laughs> news came out, and we got our Black Santas. So <laughs> I, I think I learned at a pretty pretty early age that you can witness the injustice that is relevant to your life. And Santa Claus was very relevant to my life at that point. Yeah. Um, and and uh, that you can actually in an organized and disciplined and informed communal fashion, create change that may feel silly to some people, but that is actually substantive for a black child walking around in this mall, mm -hmm. making sure that the place where we're spending our money and the city that I'm growing up in looks like me everywhere I turn. Um, so yeah, this was, young Brittany was honestly always thinking about this. I was watching Eyes on the Prize. Young Brittany was about that action. I like yeah. <laughs> So yeah, this, like this is what we've that. always been doing. I don't know okay, any other life. So, okay, so let's fast forward past young Brittany in 2014, you're the executive director of Teach for America. And that kind of leads you to the protest that's happening in your own city. And now these are not Santa Claus protests. These are no. real protests of the police. Yeah. Talk me through that situation of the progression now where you did go from, you got your first win young and now you're on the real fronts, on the yeah. front lines. Um, you know, there was some stuff that happened in between that. When I was in college, we, um, a, a group of us co-founded um, something that we called the Student Worker Alliance. And we were able to organize for, alongside domestic workers on campus, able to organize for the first raise that many of them have gotten in years um, and more livable wages. And I think that there were lots of kind of turning points along the way that set me up to be thinking more critically about how I use every platform I have for um, for justice work. So I spent, like you said, years in education. Um, and when Michael Brown Jr. was killed, I had to think about myself not only as a Black woman, not only as a Black St. Louisan, not only as somebody who lived 15 minutes from Ferguson, but also as somebody who led a program that placed teachers in the school where Michael Brown Jr. graduated from. So I was thinking about my responsibility as a civic leader, as a Black woman, as a citizen, um, and as my as Ron and Gwen's daughter and as Barrington's sister. Like if, if we were raised in this family business and there was no other place to be, but that. in the streets with thousands of other people who are continuing to get it done, right? Next to Kayla Reed and Michelle Higgins and Tef Poe and so many people who um, sacrificed so much to make sure that the world paid attention. Uh, and we know that Ferguson was a real turning point, not just for those of us who were engaging in this latest chapter of the struggle, because this struggle has gone on for generations, but it was also turning a turning point for the country and the world. Um, we, people were not paying attention to the epidemic of police violence that continues to impact Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities and has for a long time. Um, John Lewis uh, spoke to that at the March on Washington. This is in the 60s, right? Ida B. Wells spoke to that. This is decades before John Lewis. So this was not new, but it was our generation's turn and responsibility to take up the mantle. Um, and I feel incredibly fortunate to have found myself in community with creative, brilliant, loving, beautiful, awesome people who have taught me so much about how to live up to my own values, how to evolve my values to be as 
liberatory and revolutionary as possible, um, how to learn in public and not worry about perfection, but worry about um, getting better and, and being better and evolving more every day. And people who like just taught me what it means to be in struggle in love, right? That we weren't out there just because of what made us angry about the killing of Michael Brown, but we were also out there because we loved ourselves and our community and the young people coming up enough to um, to say enough was enough. Yeah, I love that. That is beautiful. And so Washington Post said you were heavily involved in planning and the coordination of a lot of the things that gone on that went on in Ferguson. Ferguson is a place, right? Because Ferguson is a repeat yeah. offender. <laughs> Ferguson is a repeat offender. So it's actually a blessing that you are there in those spaces. Can you talk about just as Ferguson became that repeat offender and as you rose in the ranks? Because I mean, you don't get put on Obama's policing task force for anything. So just to put it out there, yes, she was on Obama's administration <laughs> policing task force. You don't get there just by just uh, a want to. Like there was real planning involved. There was right. real coordinating involved. Can you just talk about being on the ground when, when things went down in Ferguson? What was the environment like? Like what was it like there? Yeah, and it's interesting because when, when they started to vet me for the task force, like the beginning of 2015, I told them, I said, if the expectation is that I stop protesting, then you should go find somebody else. Cause I'm, oh, I, my <laughs> seat on that task force is to bring, is to bring everybody with me, right? Like I'm so St. Louis, as Nelly says, okay. ask my tattoos. No, I don't have any tattoos. We'll work on that. Um, but like, I'm like, these are my people. This is my community. And I am one of the thousands of voices that could occupy this seat. And so I'm going to make sure that like Maya Angelou said, I may come as one, but I stand as 10,000. And so what we were seeing on the ground is so reflective, frankly, of what a lot of people saw, I think finally with more truthful narratives this summer um, during the protests around Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Tony McDade and others, we saw a deeply militarized police presence in a residential area. So what I really want people to picture is like a suburban streets, wide suburban streets with lawns and trees and sidewalks and strip malls and convenience stores that and, and street side streets that become neighborhoods, right? Where people are um, outside watering their lawn and their children are playing in the backyard and they're having barbecues. like. You know, it was it is it was an inner ring. Uh, Ferguson rather is an inner ring suburb full of families, and in the middle of that, you've got tanks and uh, armored vehicles that have machine guns mounted to the top of them that are literally just um, scanning the crowd. There's somebody standing on the top of that armored vehicle with their hand on that rifle, looking through the scope and just scanning you. Um, there are officers in uniforms that range from a helmet and a billy club to full riot gear. Um, and in the middle of all that, as the night starts to fall, the danger starts to come. Not because we as protesters are dangerous, but because the police are a danger to us. They're a danger to us when we're driving. They're a danger to us when we are living, sleeping, breathing. You know, you can look at so many of the people who have suffered police violence to know that all of that is true. And most certainly they are a danger to us when we are standing up in our First Amendment right. 
um, doing the thing that supposedly patriots do when we stand up and demand what rightfully is our birthright. But if you do that in black skin, you're considered a threat and a thug. So as the night would fall, there would start to be um, uh, more activity from the police, more provocative activity, right? They're actually the ones who are most often escalating the situation. People are angry. They're yeah. yelling, right? They're chanting, right? Yeah. But they're also drumming, right? And they're also dancing. And they're also protesting in the way that I'm pretty sure the supposed founding fathers of this country did because they too were protesters against the tyranny of England as they saw it. So we're out here exercising our first amendment rights and warning a warning would come over through the, the speaker of the armored vehicle saying, this is no longer a peaceful demonstration. You're ordered to disperse immediately. And not two seconds later would a hot metal flaming canister of tear gas be shot from that same armored vehicle. Now let me stop you there. What, what at that point made them say it's no longer peaceful? Did anything you guys did change? Like. What made them, exactly? What made Nothing. them say it was no longer peaceful? I'm just curious. I mean, black I know skin. the answer, but yeah, black skin made them say it was no longer peaceful. Because <laughs> okay. I mean, let's be really clear. You can look at what happened on January the sixth at the Capitol. That's where I was going to. Yep. The police know how to de-escalate. The police know how to not engage with people when they are angry. The police know how to not even engage with people who have weapons when those people have white skin. And these are not protesters. These are seditionists. These are insurrectionists. These are insurgents. These are white domestic terrorists. We are everyday folks trying to wake up, raise our families, go to work, put food on the table, go to church and do it all over again. That's what, that's what we were. But we were considered to be more of a threat with some cardboard signs and some, and some cell phones, right? And, and so, rhythm. yeah, that's all, that's all it took for them to shoot out the tear gas, the pepper spray, um, for them to, there's sound warfare that goes on with what, what are called MRAPs. So these like, these ridiculous sounds that like give everybody migraines. So we were treated like enemy combatants. Um, I, I, for a while had a bruised lung because of tear gas I got a year later at a protest where the police had killed somebody else. Um, because it is a chemical agent that can cause everything from infertility to, to, you know, uh, respiratory issues. So, um, yeah, that is what we were seeing on the ground. That's what I told President Obama every time I had audience with him. <laughs> that, that is what um, that is. And, and that is what we are looking to fix, especially given how much this last administration has taken us backwards on these things. And I'm glad you said that. OK, so you had conversations with with a president, Barack Obama. What was that like? I mean, just growing up, I, we talked about little Britney already, young Britney. Right. When she was doing now young Britney's talking to the president of the United States. What is that like? What were those conversations like? Honestly, I appreciate him because he is genuinely a listener. So he will sit there and take notes. There was one meeting that we had with him where he, we owed the White House a preliminary report. And he, it was clear he had read the report and we sat down and he had notes for all of us and questions because about the stuff he didn't understand. Very different from what we have yeah. experienced over the last four years, right? A level of yeah. competency and care and engagement. And that even if you don't agree with him all the time politically, there is an intention and a purpose that he operated with, with consistency that I always just deeply respected and still do. Um, 
And there's also something that you have to steal yourself about when you walk in there to make sure that you just don't get starstruck. Yeah. Easy to be like, the thing, of, okay, so I've told this story a couple of places, but you know, you're getting walked to, the, the first meeting that I had with him was in the Oval Office. It was December uh, of 2014. And a group of activists and organizers from around the country, a small group, we were invited to go and meet with him. And we had done so much preparation, right? We talked through our talking points. We really prepared because we didn't want to be overwhelmed by the moment and then fail at the job we were there to do, which was literally to speak truth to power. I know we say that all the time, but that was yeah. the moment that you Yeah, you were it. talking to the commander in chief about speaking truth to power, yeah. Literally, they're like, this yeah. is the most powerful person in our country, <laughs> and I'm here yeah. to speak truth directly to you. Wow. No filter, no in-between, yeah. no go-between, straight to you. Wow. So we, um, but so we, you know, we had to really prepare so we could be, we could meet the moment. And I had, in my previous parts of my career, had done some um, nonprofit lobbying work and some advocacy work. So I had had meetings in certain places of the White House, but never the Oval Office. And I remembered I, that I shared with the, the Oval Office crew what I thought about the first time I ever took a meeting in the White House. It was to remind myself not to be intimidated in a building that our ancestors built for free. Like, this building is our birthright. So you can either be intimidated by the moment or you can live up to a moment that our ancestors dreamed of, right? You can live up to a conversation that would not have been possible had it not been for their toil, not just in building the building, but for the generations of freedom work that they had to do to make sure that voices like ours could be heard and somebody like him could sit in the seat to hear us, right? Wow. So, so it was, it was challenging and truthful and, um, long. We were only supposed to meet with him for about a half an hour and our meeting turned into almost 90 minutes because it was that intense. He, he, you know, asked us questions. We gave him a lot of the truth that we had been seeing. We made some demands, particularly around how much he would speak out about these things because a lot of policing choices are made at the local level, but we, he, we needed him to use his bully pulpit even more um, to set the agenda. Um, so we, so we had, a, you know, some clear demands and he gave us some advice from his own days as an organizer. And that was the first conversation. So every conversation after that, if you can imagine, yeah. just got more truthful, more, yeah. um, and, and, and kind of more intent upon finding how we can bring some real change with immediacy. Beautiful. I love that. I, like at a certain point, I would want to hear all of the stories, but I understand you've been <laughs> doing this is a lot. So I'm like, I want to ask everything. Um, so you go from President, we well, America, we go from President Barack Obama to a dramatic difference and, <laughs> and a President Trump. Now, a lot of people are very surprised at what happened on January 6th, but anybody that's been paying attention has seen that this is energy is building. There was an energy growing. There was a hate yeah. growing. Yeah. Can you just talk about the differences that you saw in Ferguson and how to control a peaceful, a peacefully protesting crowd and to yeah. what we saw happen on January 6th when this crowd was not peaceful, they were not protesting. Can you just talk about the dramatic differences and, and, and being and just seeing it from your bird's eye view? Well, I think what's important for people to remember, we've talked, uh, we have talked and also I think society has talked a great deal about the hypocrisy in the police response, right? And hopefully that should be painfully obvious to people, but this is 
you know, the millionth example of that in American history. We watched how Dylan Roof was treated versus Black Lives Matter protesters. The, yeah. the examples and the hypocrisy have been there for a long time. But what I think is most important for people to remember about the difference are two things. One, what each group is there to do, and therefore two, how each group is going to behave. Those of us who are fighting for racial justice are fighting to make the world more free. The insurgents that we saw on Capitol Hill are, are screaming and having a tantrum because they did not get their way, because they believe that their supremacy is being threatened. They don't want more freedom. They want freedom only for themselves. They want literal exclusion for the rest of us, right? So when that is your North Star, versus freedom and liberation being your North Star, you are going to behave fundamentally differently. Anybody who has been to a protest for uh, racial justice or climate justice, um, indigenous rights, any of the things that are about bringing more freedom to people, you see a level of community care, love, and support in that space. In so many of our, in so many of our um, nights of organizing, we would end by saying it is our duty to love and support one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains, in the words of Asada Shakur. So we are orienting ourselves always to love, to support, to liberation, and to freedom. That is what we always come back down to. So what happens when you come out to one of our protests? People are passing you water. Yeah. In the days of uh, COVID-19, people are giving you masks mask. and hand sanitizer. Yep. We are taking care of each other. You go and look at the footage from January 6th. These people are trampling over each other. Yeah. They are hurting one another. They are putting each other in harm's way, right? All of a sudden, blue lives stop mattering. All lives stop yeah. mattering. Their lives were the yeah. only ones who mattered. Because, and we have to be fundamentally clear, love and care is the central tenet of freedom movements. Violence is the central tenet of white supremacy. People were talking about it like it was an extreme, but violence is a tenant and a belief and a core function of white supremacy. Just like everyday poverty is violent, just like educational inequity is violent, so too is what we saw on January 6th. It was just a really obvious and extreme example of it, but it is rooted in the exact same thing. White supremacy itself is violent. And so the expressions of it are going to continuously be violent. And so that to me is the biggest difference that we saw. You see one movement that is built on love, care, freedom, and liberation, and another that is a temper tantrum for people who have always gotten their way, who are determined to make the rest of us bow to their will by any violent means necessary. The two are not comparable in any way, shape, or form when you really bring it down to brass tacks. No, and I'm glad you said that because like, you know, you were born into this, you know, like your family, you were, you know, you were nurtured into this. I'm new to the game. You know, I'm 2020 new. My family, I already knew, but I'm talking about being on the front lines. And so right. I didn't even know what you just said, but my first instinct, one of the first things I did was I went and handed out water. The second thing I did was I threw a cookout. I threw a, a Juneteenth yeah. block party cookout. I'm like, look, all the protesters are already going to be there. I might as well bring food. So right. to your point, when you're doing something for a certain reason, natural things happen. Like I didn't even know okay. that that, you know, like that just naturally happened in me to want to do that. And then when I went down there, I saw that, oh my goodness, everybody had the same idea. There was yeah, like people hanging out masks. There were other people handing out drinks and water. So that's to right. your point, that's how a certain movement should look when you're moving the right way. Now I want to ask you about something because the new administration, a lot of people 
you know, have trust issues, I would almost want to say. And so, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, okay. Like, and so what are your thoughts moving forward about the healing process? Can the new administration do that? What are your thoughts? There's a Kamala Harris that's going to be a woman. And I know that's a loaded question. There's a lot there. So feel free to pick it, whatever you like. But what are your thoughts moving forward, getting past this point? I think that what always has to be our thought, no matter who's in office, no matter who's coming out of office, no matter what we've just been through, no matter what we're about to go through, the thing for us to always remember is that each of us has a role to play. And I know it sounds trite. I know that people say that all the time and they put it on posters and they put it on Instagram and you're supposed to just like it and move on. But it really does come down to that. Every successful social movement in history around the globe has, yes, had the charismatic leaders that we all see on posters. We just celebrated MLK Day. But there are also organizers, and there are writers, and there are scholars, and there are people who are feeding other folks, and there are people who are housing people, and there are folks who are acting as medics, and there are people who are doing the teaching everybody has a role if the movement is to be successful the same is true about the moving forward of an entire country we cannot sit on our hands and get comfortable again and act as though joe and kamala can do everything because guess what they are two people with yes a lot of power but still limited power why because that power was intentionally limited in a democracy the real power belongs to the people so we set the agenda we call the shots our tax dollars our voices our protests our movements that's what calls the shots We have to be determined to be engaged at the local, the state, and the federal level. I think one of the things that has been beautiful about the last four years is that people have been stepping into their own power. So instead of looking to the leader of this movement or the chair of this board or the president of this organization to do all the work, they're saying, what's happening in my own community? What are the policing regulations in my zip code? What are the schools look like in my zip code? Is there time I can spend there? Is there talent I can offer? Is there treasure I can give to actually move forward on the policies that dictate my everyday life? At the state level, what are the, the, the voting regulations in my state? Are we a voter ID state? Are we a state that has great access to the ballot or limiting access to the ballot, right? Are we engaging in voter suppression like we've seen all over this country? At the national level, most certainly making your voice heard because there are a hundred days that everybody's focused on right now and we should be focused on those, but there are hundreds of days after that that we still need this Congress, this Supreme Court and this White House to do what needs to be done to heal us from a pandemic, to help us heal our economy, to to make real strides on racial justice, to make immediate and urgent strides on climate change. And that's just four of the issues that are in front of us right now. So we have to be as committed as we have ever been to make sure that the truth and accountability that has to come before we heal actually happens and that the policy changes that need to exist so that people can experience love every day and not just hear us talk about it, that those things actually happen. So I I understand if people have trust issues. I even understand if people love Joe Biden and Kamala Harris with all their heart. Wherever you are on the spectrum, you still have work to do. We each still have work to do. I'm just gonna end it with this. What are you optimistic about? Because a lot of people, you know, I think optimism A lot of people are saying, you know, this is the same as before. And then there's people that are saying, no, this time is different. What are you optimistic about in 2021? 
Um, I really, I really like to use the term disciplined hope um, because I, I think that sometimes people get caught up with like hokey hope or optimism, and they think they're just supposed to be, um, uh, they're supposed to be happy and excited. Uh, with no critique, right? And I actually just don't think that that's fair to people. I'm not saying this is what you're saying. I just think sometimes people don't know what to do with the idea of being hopeful when it seems like there's no reason to be hopeful. But what I call disciplined hope is actually being glad that we know the scale of the problem, even if the problem is massive, so that we actually understand just how much work we have to do, and that we can also look to history and see just how much we've done before. And that doesn't mean that that has not come without great sacrifice or without great cost, because it's important to remember that while we're here talking, not everybody has survived the last four years. Not everybody has survived this pandemic. And we owe it to them to make sure that we keep our hand to the plow so we can look at the scale of the problem, we can look at the victories of the past and learn from them and actually put those two things together and be unrelenting and determined in moving forward. So what gives me that kind of discipline hope is looking at the people who helped us survive ridiculous times in history and helped us actually move forward out of them, right? If Harry could keep going, then so can I. If Ida B. Wells can keep going, then so can I. If the young people who are marching forward for climate justice and for uh, to end environmental racism and to end racial injustice can keep going, then so can I. So I really, my hope comes certainly from God and it comes in every everyday people who are deciding to to take up the yoke that that's theirs um, and do the hardest work there is, which is to change the very ground beneath us. It is always work worth doing. Disciplined hope. I love that. Like I'm going to I'm going to take that little nugget with me. Disciplined hope. I like <laughs> that. I love that. Brittany, thank you for joining me on Remotely Renee. I feel like, look, you could be, a, it's in your blood. Like you could have preached to me. You, you taught me, you preached to me. You did all of that. Oh, I, can, I can feel, I can feel all of the DNA in you coming out in the best way possible though, because it's the passion that gets people interested. Hi, this is Will Friedle. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.